This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host for this episode, Christopher Rose with the Department of History. I'm excited to have as my guest today Julia Gossard, who is an alumna of the Department of History and now an assistant professor at Utah State University, where she specializes in French history. Yes. And today we're going to be talking about Louis XIV's absolutism and the affair of the poisons. And you got me with the affair of the poisons. I don't even (laughs) need to know anything else about the episode. Yeah, that usually gets people when you start talking about the affair of the poisons. So uh, set the stage for us. What... What is the Affair of the Poisons, and how does it fit in with Louis XIV and absolutism? The Affair of the Poisons is a period right at the end of the 17th century when we have a great deal of fear and concern among both the monarchy and the nobility that people are using black magic, love potions, and other sort of occult magic in order to get ahead over one another. And what we see that sort of coinciding with is this idea that people are using that to advance their positions towards Louis XIV, to move up his bureaucracy in that way. So, you know, absolutism, poison, and magic aren't three things that you normally hear together, but it's a really important moment in this sort of absolutist historiography that's happening. It does, however, seem to fit in with the sort of theme of paranoia in politics, which has been a recurring theme throughout history. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And there's there's a great deal of paranoia surrounding both the nobility as well as Louis XIV himself over who is using these, who is making them, and what exactly are they going to do with them? Because part of this maneuvering among the nobility is deciding who has more power over someone else, who is the most popular at court. You know, Louis XIV created this whole system at Versailles where it mattered how close you were to him. And so if you have people using love potions and black magic to be able to get close to him, that's a problem. When Brian Levat came in, and he's done a couple of episodes on on the witchcraft phenomenon yeah. in, in medieval Europe, one of the things that he, he really sort of emphasized was evidence versus rumor. Mm-hmm. So the first question I have is, is there any evidence that any of this happened, or was it all rumor? Well, there was a huge secret sort of trial that occurred, known as the Chambre Ardente, or the Burning Court, that was headed up by the head of Paris's secret police from about 1670 to 1685. And we have more than 10,000 records showing testimony from people who claim that they are the poisoners, the sellers of these potions, and others claiming that they've gotten money from noble people to do this. And when you look at the archives, sometimes you see blood-stained pages, sometimes you see notes that are written back and forth. So there was definitely this kind of sale of black magic happening. Now, whether or not we believe that they were having masses where they conjured the devil, I don't know about that. So out of these 10,000 documents mm-hmm. that, that, that you mentioned, are there any stories that sort of stand out as, as really important? Definitely. I can, I can tell you a great one that was recounted by the Abbe de Guibourg on October 10th, 1680. And he's being questioned during this testimony for the 27th time regarding his involvement in black magic, satanic rituals, and poison making by a group of renegade clerics, magicians, and supposed sorcerers. So he said, 
says that just after sunset in 1676, four cloaked figures stealthily entered the cellar of the Saint-Marcel church on the outskirts of Paris. And this was a rather interesting group that he's describing. There's a young page. There's a prostitute who had recently given birth to a very feeble baby who she was cradling in her arms, as well as two elderly priests who were there. The page handed one of the elderly priests a lock of hair and a sealed note. The note was written by the page's mistress and it contained a list of demands and promised the two priests each 50 pistoles or kind of amounts of currency, which would have been a sizable amount, that they would be paid immediately and then 2,000 pounds that they were to be paid after evidence that a mass had occurred. So having found this payment more than satisfactory, one of the priests asked the page to be seated as the other priest laid the prostitute and her child down on the church's altar. So we have this kind of imagery here, right, Right. of sort of the Catholic altar that's been draped in velvet, laying this naked prostitute down. And they decided to place a veil over her face and legs that so only her breast and stomach were visible. One of the priests then recited a traditional conjuration to the devil that asked for the mistress's demands. He said, O Aristroth, Asmodee, most faithful princes of darkness, I conjure you here to accept the sacrifice I present to you of this child in return for the things that I ask of you for my client, the loyalty of her lover, and that nothing be denied to her lover of which he asks from the king, and that she may marry her lover upon the death of his wife." At the same time, the other priest dropped the lock of hair into a large chalice and balanced it on a prostitute's stomach. He then held the baby above the woman's stomach and pierced the child's neck with a small penknife, draining the blood into the chalice. Once this was over and the baby had died, they decided to take that note that they had originally had and smear it with the blood to show that this mass had occurred. They then removed the baby's entrails and other parts that would then be later used to make love potions in that way. Well, I can certainly think of nothing more that would put me in an amorous mood. Than, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> this is a lot of detail. I mean, having, having been through documents from this time, this is unusually detailed. It is, yes. And I think what's really important about that is the fact of what the client was asking for, right? That she asked for everything that her lover asked from the king be granted. And this is where absolutism starts to figure in here, right? She's obviously asking to be married to her lover once his wife dies, But she's also asking for sort of this rise in social status. So we see this here really coming up against that issue of absolutism here and seeing how these people were part of a system that was heavily involved with Louis XIV. Did we ever figure out who was the mistress involved? I don't know that the mistress was named here, although he names lots of people in the court. I don't know if this particular record names it, but he names um, Madame de Maintenon, who was one of Louis XIV's most prized lovers, as being involved with this. So it was a real scandalous sort of affair here. What you're describing are fairly affluent, powerful people going to, assuming the This is actually describing something that really happened, which I guess is probably a big caveat in Mm -hmm. in describing this, going to some pretty uh, lengthy extremes in order to get close to the monarch, which leads me to wonder, what is this system you're describing, the system of absolutism, and why were people so desperate 
to be in the inner circle. Well, I think that we should kind of back up and and think about what absolutism is for a moment, because when we think of absolutism, we normally associate this political theory with one kingdom, France, and one ruler, which is Louis XIV, or the Sun King, as probably a lot of people know him. And this system, kind of giving a workable definition here, is just one in which the ruler, usually the monarch, gains control and rules individually. He does not rule with the assistance of a council or an advisor or a prime minister. He is the sole authority and head of state. Now, that means if there's just one person, he has to create a very, very, very lengthy bureaucracy. So Louis XIV's bureaucracy is probably one of the most detailed, where he feels that he has to be involved at every level of government and have sort of his agents of power at every level. So we see him kind of creating this large bureaucracy where nobles felt the need to work through this system in order to get taxes be reduced. They had to be part of this bureaucracy in order to get favorable titles, in order to make favorable marriage arrangements for their children in the future. So he really wasn't kidding when he said l'état c'est moi. No, l'état c'est moi. I am the state. He truly believed that, that his power was synonymous with that of the state. Wow. And what he said went... Apparently. Yes. It seems really extreme. I I know that there's a quote where Louis even said that, you know, he didn't want anyone else in the country to even be able to sign a passport, which is such a a micromanaging yes. technique. So so was this really possible that he could he he could have this level of control? Well, that's the that's the question up for debate among historians for the past pretty much 30 years. So there is a thought among historians that's really been created by the very well-respected professor William Bike called preventional revisionism which argues that Louis XIV's power wasn't as absolute as we have made it out to be. In fact, his power didn't really rest upon the subjugation of the nobility, but instead on the cooperation and negotiation of Louis XIV with his nobility, especially in regional parliaments. So in those in Toulouse or Marseille, far from the king's reach, he depended upon that nobility in order to support him. And they built up that bureaucracy. But he wasn't the only one giving direct of authority, they had to work in cooperation with each other. Now, this special commission of the Chambre and the Affair of the Poisons, though, presents a very interesting moment in absolutism where we have to question provincial revisionism itself. Okay, how so? Well, this is really a significant institution when you look at it that is an absolutist institution. Louis XIV decides to create this court himself in secrecy without using the authority of any noble member. And he could bring in any noble person who he believed was using the magic, buying the magic, or supporting those people who were making these magic potions against him. And the records of the Chabra Ardent really display a vastly different picture of our state-building process. Even though all of the crimes held at the Chambre Ardent and heard could have been heard at the Parlement de Paris, which would have been the main court that was staffed with most noble members, Louis XIV made a very conscious decision to circumnavigate this judicial process. And instead, he created this secret court. And he really stripped the nobility who were brought before it of all of their privileges, all of their titles. And he did this without any cooperation or asking the nobles to be able to do so. 
He's playing them off of each other. Yes, exactly. So it's a way in which they are trying to defend themselves, create loyalty to the king, and also Louis XIV to say, while you have this judicial system in the Parlement de Paris and you have judicial processes, I am above the state in that way. I am above this judicial process, and I can strip you of any of those at any time necessary. Given the fact, too, that most of these crimes were being committed in order to get close to him, that says something very important about the power that Louis XIV felt he had. It strikes me that this would be both a very turbulent system and yet one that is very stable mm-hmm. at the same time. Is, is that accurate? In terms of the judicial system? In terms of keeping the monarch at the top. Yes. While everyone else around him is sort of kept off balance. Yeah. I mean, this is this is part of why he creates this extrajudicial branch, right? Is, is that he wants to make sure that these patronage systems that the nobles themselves have created, where they make alliances with other noble families in order to best raise those noble families higher and higher, are going to be eradicated. And he's saying he is in charge of all of the decisions being made there. Now, did you go through these records yourself? I did. And they're very easily accessible on Gallica, which is the uh, digital collection from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. So anybody can go through them. There are, I think, 16 tomes of testimony records that you can see. That's incredible. What were the punishments and and the charges that were actually filed? Um, It sounds like... I have in my head something like the Spanish Inquisition or the Salem Witch Trials, but I don't want to make the assumption that that's how it was. It somewhat is in many ways that there is this investigator going out and trying to find any form of magic. So most of the people who are questioned in the Chambre Ardent admitted to buying one or more of the following products. A love potion, a poison to kill a rival, abortificants to either use for themselves or against someone else. So that says something about they were using possible infanticide as a political strategy. Enchanted objects to control someone else, so talismans that have been blessed by apparently the devil. Or even good luck charms, so lots of rabbits' feet Mm. or different sorts of little objects that would provide luck in that way. And people continually revealed in their testimony that their desire was to increase their social status or harm the social status of another. So we see the way that that cult of personality that Louis XIV and this bureaucracy that is created mean the utmost importance to these people, that they would be willing to go against Catholic tradition as well as legal codes. And France is very staunchly Catholic at this point. Louis had expelled the Huguenots. You know, this is not a time to be messing around with black magic. By no means whatsoever, right? This is a time when Louis XIV wants everybody to be as Catholic as possible. One of his titles is the most Catholic monarch of Europe. What charges were brought? Were people punished? Were they sent to jail? Were they burned at the stake? There was no burning at the stake at this time for these people, at least. So that was sort of disappointing, actually, not to find in these records. You'd expect to find that more often, but unfortunately you don't. Really, the sentencing there seemed to be more indefinite imprisonment, fines, stripping these people of their religious titles or orders, and really the evidence being used against them was so little that it really took torture to be able to get some of these confessions out of them. Right. Which, of course, in the modern historical mind raises the question of credibility. Exactly. Exactly. 
This has been a, a really interesting look because you don't think about absolutism in quite this way. No. Seeing where it can run with unchecked powers is fascinating. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. This has been another episode of 15-Minute History, and we will see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.